Back when I worked in private industry, I had a co-worker named Frank. And Frank was okay to work with. He did his work reasonably well, but he was very hard to get along with and to be around because he was an incredibly self-centered and arrogant man. When you first met Frank, within the first couple of minutes, he would find a way to very ostentatiously raise his arm and look at his wrist so that you would know he was wearing an expensive Rolex watch. And it wasn't long before he would be telling you about the very fancy sports car that he drove. If you bumped into him in the employee cafeteria, he'd want to tell you about his latest ritzy vacation. In meetings, he loved to have the last word to prove that he was right. Frank was full of pride. And I'm sure you've encountered people like this. We meet prideful people in our places of employment. We meet them in our neighborhoods. We might even have someone like that in our own family. We also find such people within the church. They love to show off their Bible knowledge by always having the final word on spiritual matters. And they love to show off their spirituality by offering long and flowery prayers. They dominate discussions to make sure that you know what they think. And when they speak about people who disagree with them, they often do so in condescending ways. See, pride is a universal human problem. So it shows up in the church because we're a community of broken and imperfect people. It's one of the many things that God wants to correct in his family so that we can become the people that God wants us to be. Pride rears its ugly head throughout the Bible. And it's rampant in the first century congregation that meets in the city of Corinth. Now, the Corinthian church certainly has some people who are striving to learn how to live with humility like Jesus. But there are many others who would prefer to promote themselves. So they love to brag about their abilities and about their spiritual accomplishments. And in particular, they love to tell people about the visions they've had. Visions from God. And all of this boasting is designed to build themselves up and to impress other people. It's also designed to undermine the influence of the Apostle Paul, the man that God actually used to start their church. For a variety of reasons, some of the Corinthians resent Paul's influence, and they want him marginalized. So they wield their pride like a weapon against him. God doesn't want to let this fester because pride can destroy a church. So the Holy Spirit prompts Paul to address this issue in one of his letters. And he tackles the spiritual immaturity of these prideful believers in a rather unusual way. Since they've created a culture of boasting, he decides to boast right along with them. However, while Paul's critics boast about their successes, Paul, as we will see, is going to boast about his weakness, about hardship, about failure, about struggle. He's not interested in boasting about his success. And the reason is, when he boasts about his weakness, it shifts the focus away from himself and toward Jesus. And by boasting about his weakness, it allows Paul to explain that our human weakness 
gives God's power and God's strength a chance to flourish in our lives. And when we acknowledge our own human weakness and we rely on God's strength, then our tendency toward pride can be defeated. So let's see what we can learn from the Apostle Paul as he addresses this very challenging issue with the Corinthians. We're going to begin in chapter 11 of the book of 2 Corinthians, starting in verse 24. Paul writes and says, Five times I received from the Jews the forty lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was pelted with stones. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and day in the open sea. Imagine what that experience must have been like. I've been constantly on the move. I've been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my fellow Jews, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, and in danger from false believers. I have labored and have toiled and have often gone without sleep. I have known hunger and thirst and have often gone without food. I have been cold and naked. Besides everything else, I face daily the pressure of my concern for all the churches. Who is weak and I do not feel weak? Who is led into sin and I do not inwardly burn? So if I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. You know, as I read these words, I'm I'm reminded of the fact that the Apostle Paul knows the Bible really well. And I find myself wondering if he's deliberately following the very godly advice that we're given in the book of Proverbs, chapter 26, verse 5, where it says, Answer a fool according to his folly, or he will be wise in his own eyes. I think that's what Paul's doing here. He's answering the fools in Corinth according to their own folly. He's using their foolish way of behaving to make a point. And so they brag and he brags. But he brags about hardships. And even as Paul does that, as he brags about his hardships, we need to recognize that he could, he could opt for a different approach. He could try to outdo his critics by bragging about his very real and very significant accomplishments. For example, he could write to the Corinthians and say something like this. You know, I went to the city of Thessalonica before anyone ever had heard anything about Jesus. And I preached. I explained God's truth from the Bible. And there were people there who responded and they repented and they became followers of Jesus and it wasn't long before we had a thriving church. Look what God did through me. Now, you see, that would be true, but it would be improper boasting. It would be improper because it would put Paul at the center of the story instead of Jesus. And so instead of bragging about positive responses to his preaching, Paul talks about the negative responses, and in particular, the negative responses of the Jewish and Roman authorities. And so he writes that he was whipped five different times, each time receiving 39 lashes. He was beaten with rods three times, and once he even was stoned and left for dead. Paul's back and his neck 
would have been a mass of scars from, from this undeserved punishment he received simply for telling people about Jesus. It's really nothing to brag about. And in addition to to all of this, this harsh opposition from the religious and civic authorities, Paul faced hardship from his own arduous travels. He was shipwrecked, he was hungry, he often was poorly clothed. And on top of it all, because he had the heart of a pastor, he often was worried about the spiritual welfare of the believers that God had entrusted to his care. All of this tells us that ministry simply was not easy for Paul. His life was marked by physical, emotional, and spiritual toil. We need to understand that by writing all of this, Paul is not trying to play the victim card. He wants to make a point. His opponents within the Corinthian church are bragging about themselves, but Paul wants to show them a different way. It's the way of humility, not pride. And humility is the way of a disciple of Jesus. So Paul highlights his weakness because he's a follower of Christ. And he understands that the focus never should be on what he can accomplish, but on what God can accomplish. And that's the point Paul is ultimately going to make. But he's not there yet. Before he gets there, he's going to do something interesting. He's just talked about his weakness and he's boasted about his weakness. And now he's going to change direction and boast about some incredible visions that God has given him. And at first glance, it sounds rather arrogant. But Paul is setting up his readers to understand the importance of brokenness and humility. We see that in the first few verses of chapter 12. Chapter 12, verse 1. Paul writes, I must go on boasting. Although there is nothing to be gained, very important, although there's nothing to be gained, I will go on to visions and revelations from the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. Whether it was in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And I know that this man, whether in the body or apart from the body, I do not know, but God knows, was caught up to paradise and heard inexpressible things, things that no one is permitted to tell. I will boast about a man like that, but I will not boast about myself except about my weaknesses. Then listen to this. Even if I should choose to boast, I would not be a fool because I would be speaking the truth. Hmm. But I refrain so that no one will think more of me than is warranted by what I do or say, or because of these surpassingly great revelations. Well, one of the challenges of reading a letter is you're only hearing one side of the conversation. But prior to this, some of Paul's critics, some of these arrogant people in Corinth, have been trying to elevate themselves above Paul by claiming that they've had all these phenomenal, mystical, spiritual visions and experiences. And if they've had those kinds of experiences, aren't they great? And if Paul hasn't had such experiences, he must not be that great. So here in the letter, Paul's now responding to that, and he describes his own visions. 
Now, at first, it does sound like he's talking about someone else. In verse 2, he says, well, I know a man. But by the time we get to the end, it's clear that he's writing about himself. And it's fair to ask, why does he write about himself indirectly? Well, at first, to make it sound less like bragging as he describes the event. But the fact is, Paul wants to emphasize the event more than himself. And this was a truly unusual and incredible event. Because Paul, in some way, is taken into the very presence of God in the third heaven. Now, on that day, the first heaven referred to the sky. The second heaven referred to the realm of Satan. And the third heaven referred to the realm of God. Paul was saying, I was in heaven with God. But he doesn't know how that happened. He can't explain it. He doesn't know if it was physical. Was he actually bodily removed from the earth for a time and taken to heaven and then sent back? Was this some kind of -of out-of-body experience? He doesn't know. He just knows that he was in the presence of God where he saw and heard things that are so profound he can't even begin to find the words to describe them. His visions in heaven were inexpressible. And as we read this, we need to remember that Paul introduced it back in verse 1 by saying there's little to gain about boasting about such things. And he's right. After all, how can you really boast about an event you did not cause, you did not create, and over which you had no control? There's really no point in boasting. And yet, when incredible things happen, the temptation to boast is very, very huge. And that's what Paul's critics are doing with their visions. They're continually boasting. I have this feeling that if Paul's critics, these arrogant people in Corinth, if they were alive today, they'd be the kind of people that would be posting pictures and notes on Facebook. They'd be sending out tweets on Twitter about what God did. They'd tell their story in a YouTube video. They'd write a book. They'd try to get themselves interviewed on TV. And personally, I find this rather tragic. But we see it so often. God provides a unique, special blessing to someone and they transform it into a tool of self-promotion. Now, the arrogant members of the Corinthian church don't have modern digital tools, but they, they in their own way are doing everything they can to draw attention to themselves, but Paul doesn't do that. He plays this down. And we know that because even as he relates the story of this incredible experience, he says something that would stun his readers. He tells them, this event took place 14 years ago. It's old news. Paul's experience is 14 years old, yet this is the first time the Corinthians have heard about it. Nor does Paul mention this heavenly vision and experience any other place in his writings. We have no indication that Paul is known as the apostle who was taken up to heaven. I think it's highly likely that he's never mentioned it to anyone. He sat on this story, this incredible experience for 14 years. 
So why doesn't Paul widely publicize what God did? It's because he understands it's not a cause for pride. It's a cause for great humility. It's, humility is the right response. Humility that God would choose to enrich his life with such an amazing experience. Humility that God would display his power in such an amazing way for him. Humility always is the proper response to the work of God in our lives. And God himself is going to make that very clear by what he does next in the life of Paul. Let's continue on. Therefore, Paul writes, summarizing what he's just talked about, therefore, in order to keep me from being conceited, you see, there's an issue of pride. And Paul did not want to get sucked into pride. To keep me from becoming conceited, look what God did. Paul says, I was given a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. But he said to me, these are the words of Jesus to Paul, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power, Jesus says, is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. As I consider what Paul's going through here, something strikes me. Paul was very faithful to God. Paul traveled widely, and travel was risky in those days. It was dangerous. We saw that from what he told us about his travels. And he endured a lot to fulfill his calling and be faithful and to go everywhere that he could throughout the known world to tell people about Jesus. And then God gives him this amazing experience of heaven, and Paul doesn't brag about it. So he is a hardworking, long-suffering, humble person. And it seems to me that this is exactly the kind of person that God would want to bless. This is exactly the kind of person who deserves good things from God. But that's not what happens. Because the reality is Paul doesn't deserve anything from God. No one does. And God does not give us what we deserve. He does not give us what we want. He gives us what we need the most. And what Paul evidently needs is a reminder to be humble, particularly after his experience in heaven. Paul needs a reminder of his own human weakness. And God gives it to him in the form of this metaphorical thorn in the flesh. Now Paul doesn't say what this thorn is but he views it as something from Satan. So whatever it is, it's nasty. Now some Christians believe the thorn is a physical ailment, perhaps a speech impediment or vision trouble, migraines, insomnia, recurring fevers, or even epilepsy. Bible commentators have proposed all those explanations. Some believe it's the persecutions Paul experienced, such as whipping, beating. And stoning. Some believe it might be an intense 
sinful urge that Paul struggles to subdue. Maybe even a sexual temptation. Well, as I think about that, it occurs to me that physical ailments certainly are annoying, but, but I'm not sure we can classify them as the evil work of sa- Satan. Personally, I think that stirring up opposition to Paul's ministry or trying to lure him away from God into sinful temptation, th- those seem much more like the kinds of things that Satan loves to do to derail God's people. However, we, we just don't know. And it doesn't matter or Paul would have told us. What matters most is how Paul responds and what God says, and that's what Paul does tell us. And as we see here at first, Paul focuses on the problem because it's not pleasant. He calls it a torment. A torment. Whatever it is, it hurts deeply in some way. So Paul fervently prays. He prays three times for relief, and there's no relief. I don't know about you, but it's in moments like that I'm tempted to say, oh, God didn't answer my prayer. But that's not correct. Paul does get an answer, and the answer is no. And Because Paul has prayed intensely, he must be looking and listening intently, ready to receive the answer from God so he's able to hear and embrace this answer of no. And it tells us that sometimes the answer we want is not the answer we need. And sometimes the best answer you and I can get from God is an act of tough love that dampens our pride, that teaches us humility, and strengthens our faith. So Paul is able to hear God's no. And because he trusts that God does do what's always best for him, then he's able to see this thorn of torment in a new light. He actually is able to see value in it. Even though it may have been lasting for 14 years, ever since he had his experience of heaven. This thorn is a blessing because it reminds Paul that the most important thing is to receive God's gracious forgiveness through Jesus. The most important thing is to come to God as a repentant sinner and to get a fresh start. And that's why Jesus says his grace is sufficient. God's grace is always sufficient. That's the most important thing we need. And it's far more important than living a comfortable and problem-free life. This thorn is a blessing. It hurts, but it's a blessing. It's a blessing because it reminds Paul that despite his accomplishments, he's not a flawless spiritual giant. And the ongoing torment of this thorn challenges Paul to be humble and reminds him daily to rely on God. And here's what's really fascinating. Because of this thorn, Paul is broken. His life is harder because of it. And yet this thorn also helps to break his tendency toward pride. So the very thing that breaks him also helps to mend him. It helps to draw him closer to God. This thorn helps Paul rely on the strength of Jesus, which helps him to become more like Jesus. And so Paul understands the paradox of living 
by faith. We only can be strong when we admit our weakness and lean on God. That's when we can see the power of God at work in our lives. And that leaves no room for pride, only for thankfulness and humility. That's what Paul experiences. That's what he wants for the Christians living in Corinth. And that's what God wants for each of us. So I believe this passage challenges us to consider what kind of thorn or thorns that God might place into our lives as a way to promote humility, as a way to promote greater dependence on the power of God and not depend so much on ourselves. And as I think about this, I'm reminded of, of Michael, a former acquaintance. He was a believer and he was a deacon in his church, but he struggled with explosive anger. His anger was driven by pride because Michael needed to win. He needed to win in every area of life, and so anger permeated his life. He played on a City League baseball team, and at least once every game he would erupt when the umpire made a call he didn't like. In deacons' meetings, he periodically would explode at the other members of the group when they didn't see things his way. His anger showed up from time to time in his life group during Bible discussions, and he periodically directed that anger toward members of his family. Two men in the church decided to put Galatians 6.1 into practice. And that, that verse tells us, if someone is caught in a sin, restore them gently. So these two men went to Michael in love, and they talked with him about his anger and his pride. And they discussed this passage that we've looked at this morning. They talked about Paul's battle with this thorn of torment and, and how this thorn helped Paul to place his focus on Jesus and how this thorn helped Paul to curb his pride and how it helped to promote greater humility in his life. How the thorn ultimately helped Paul to experience the power of God in his life. Michael was able to see how Paul's experience applied to him. So he acknowledged his weakness, and he prayed for the Holy Spirit to give him the self-control that he lacked. The two men who met with him made a commitment that they would pray daily for Michael, that the Holy Spirit would change him. And as Michael prayed, and as these men prayed, and as Michael was honest with God about his weakness, over the next year he slowly and steadily and continued to change. The pride began to dissipate. And as the pride began to dissipate, the anger began to fade. And these things were replaced by a spirit of grateful humility for the grace and goodness of Jesus. Five years later, Michael's City League team was in the game for the league championship. It was a very close game, a very exciting game. The lead changed hands several times and emotions were high. And there were two or three very controversial calls during the game which got the teams riled up. There was a lot of anger on the field, but none of it came from Michael. He was a voice of calm. He was a peacemaker. And the game came down to the final play with a close call at home plate and the call went against Michael's team. 
He reacted with great disappointment because he still was a very passionate player. He just no longer was an angry player. Jesus had changed him. After the game, as he walked out to his car, a member of the other team approached him and said, Hey, Mike, I've been playing against you for years. And I always knew at some point in the game, you were going to lose it. You were just going to explode with irrational anger. He said, you haven't done that once this season. You didn't do it tonight. What's changed? Now, is that a moment for pride? Is that a moment to say, look what I've done to improve myself? No. No. That's a moment to point to the power of God. So Michael said, let me tell you how God changed me. He helped me to do what I could not do on my own. You see, Michael was broken and he was mended because he accepted the weakness of this thorn in his life and he embraced the power of God. He was following the example of the Apostle Paul who also was broken and mended because Paul accepted the weakness of his thorn and he embraced the power of God. What would happen if we did that? How does God want you? How does God want me to be broken and ultimately mended by the thorns that he might give us.